the kingdom of God is justice. It's equity and it's peace. To say it in a reverse way, living in the forever kingdom of God means living in the realm of peace, shalom, justice, and equity. It's much more, but it is at minimum this. And tragically, evil continues to fight against it. But this is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring from heaven to earth to establish in his subversive way, seeing it multiply like a mustard seed growing and to fulfill God's forever promises to redeem and to recreate all that is lost and is broken. So Mark, the gospel of Mark, is working to reveal this kingdom, to make it known in a, in a masterful way, and that Jesus is king. And we saw that last week as Jesus entered into the city in the way Mark presents it in anticlimactic way, often called the triumphal entry, but he rides in lowly on a, on a donkey, not in a chariot, not upon a war horse, but upon a donkey, a servant animal. He comes into the temple and he looks around and Mark hangs this kind of ominous prophetic line, since it was already late, he took his disciples and left. And there's this sense that it's already too late for this structure, for this place. As we know and we see, Jesus is the new temple, the tabernacle, God's presence in humanity. It's as if God has already left the temple and Jesus is saying, can any, anything here be redeemed? It's already too late and he walks away. And now in this section, as we heard read, his judgment comes to the temple and to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes who had perpetuated the injustice that was happening in this religious system that they had built up something that was never intended. As Mark invited us to pause and reflect that the place of God's dwelling with humanity, the place that we would gather is a, is a place of prayer, communion with God for all nations, for all the peoples. But you have made it a den of robbers. You have stolen the very heartbeat of God, even the presence of God from the people. The passage seems disjointed. I wonder if you noticed that or felt that as as it begins with this encounter with a fig tree, and then it ends with this encounter with a fig tree and Jesus teaching on prayer. And in the middle, he's back in the temple. Some have said cleansing the temple, but I think he's really shutting off, cutting off the life source of, of God's presence with his people because of the ways that it had been corrupted. Now, by now, we should be used to Mark's style. And so when it, something seems disjointed, we should pause and say, oh, what's the theme that he's trying to communicate? Because he, he writes thematically throughout. He's not writing chronologically. There is a flow to that, but it's not that one event happens after the other. He's trying to highlight and illumine. So he's not trying to confuse us by sandwiching uh, the story of the temple in between this cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree. The fig tree is symbolic. It's a metaphor for what is happening spiritually amongst the people and really what is happening in the temple. We should know by now that Jesus teaches in this way. Sometimes there's signs and wonders and healings, certainly out of his compassion and his mercy for people, but they are, they are meant to reveal something more, something deeper and spiritual that, that Jesus had come to bring, his sozo, his salvation, which is wholeness, fullness, rightness in every way. And so whenever, there's, whenever Mark shows us a healing, and there were certainly many more, but when blind come to see, 
when death come to hear, when, when physicalities are restored, when someone can rise up and walk to follow Jesus. These are all emblematic of something, something so much more, and Mark wants us to see that. There's also then living parables alongside his parables that teach his truth. There's living parables, these events themselves that, that reveal some powerful messages and themes throughout Mark. So we think back to the, heal, the, the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, events that certainly fed people that day, but were meant to reveal what God's kingdom is like in abundance, a provision, bread, life, superfluous life in Christ. When he healed the, the first blind man at Bethsaida in chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8, you may remember he he did it with spit, and it was progressive. And we saw that as a, as a living parable, certainly sight to this man. It restored his life, but emblematic of what it means to come to see in the kingdom of God. And, and often it is incremental or progressive as we come to trust. The transfiguration is certainly a powerful moment, but like a living parable, recognizing and, and showing his disciples that Jesus is the one. He is the one who has come as the Messiah and the Savior. Here again is a, a living parable in this encounter with the fig tree, this cursing of the fig tree. What happens to the fig tree is what is happening in the temple. And really, we could expand that to all people who would perpetuate uh, violence, oppression, abuse, or setting barriers between anyone who wants to draw near to Jesus. Jesus is showing what happens in his kingdom. The fig tree is really representative of, of the temple itself and that structure and that system that is in place. The scriptures are replete with these kinds of imagery, with agricultural or agrarian imagery. Certainly that was the societies, that context made, made sense. But throughout the, the pr prophetic voices, they would pick up on this theme of life and abundance from the land the land of Judea, the, known as the promised land for, for Israel at this time, was a, a fertile valley from Galilee uh, through the, the Jordan River Valley and the surrounding regions so that olives, olive groves would, would thrive, vineyards would thrive. It was, it was known, fig, fig orchards would thrive. It was called a land flowing with milk and honey. It's often why the, these kinds of places and these kinds of lands are fought over intensely because of the resources that they can provide, the life-giving source that they can give. So this was actually true, but the, the prophetic voices throughout God's story reveal that it's tied to the people. There's imagery that when God's people are faithful to him, responsive to him, living in justice and mercy and equity, to bless, to give, and, and to even, even to receive the surrounding nations, to steward what he's given. When they're, when they're faithful to him, the land responds. The land flows with milk and honey. There's an abundance of provision. When God's people turn from him, inwardly, self-centeredly, divisively, walk in disobedience or, or oppression against his way, break his commandments, then the, the land dries up. Famine comes. Rains will not fall. And whether this was actual, something that, that God did, or the figurative of the, of the heart, that the heart is becoming barren of God's people, it's a consistent metaphor used. I'll, I'll pick just a couple for us to read. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah compares Israel, God's people, with a vineyard. 
Isaiah 5, 5. Now I tell you, this is God, God speaking through Isaiah, now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. It shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. And I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but he saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he heard a cry, a mourning. I'll pick the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become like one who, after the summer fruit has been gathered, after the vintage has been gleaned, finds no cluster to eat. There's no first ripe fig for which I hunger. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. Their hands are skilled to do evil. The official and the judge, the leaders, ask for a bribe. The powerful dictate what they desire, thus they pervert justice. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. And these are just a couple. These images uh, connecting God's people with what is meant to be abundance, life, provision uh, for them and for all peoples, the nations, representative of what God wants to do throughout the world. This is God's will. This is justice, mercy, provision, life. And when God's people turn inwardly and selfishly looking for their own advancement, they are against his heart, against his will. They perpetuate injustice, and he will cut off. He will not see fruit thrive from them. This is the prophetic word. So Jesus wasn't just being mean to a fig tree. Environmentalists can take a deep breath. He was being prophetic. He was joining in the story, as he often did, fulfilling it, revealing it, demonstrating what always happens. The fig tree looked good and beautiful from the outside, but had no fruit upon it. No matter how beautiful a tree that is meant to bear fruit and give life looks from the outside, if it is not bearing fruit, it is worthless. It's contrary to its nature, to what it was created for. Now, it seems unfair for Jesus to curse this tree because Mark specifically tells us it was not the season for figs. It was too early in the season. So Jesus curses a tree that maybe could have or would have produced figs. That doesn't seem fair. Mark doesn't tell us what the reason is here. So there's some speculation. I invite you to ponder on parts of Scripture like this that aren't revealed. And maybe you'll come up with a, a different reason for why he would tell us. He could have left that line out. Most readers then would, would assume that this tree should have been bearing fruit. It wasn't. That makes sense. That makes sense in comparison to the temple, which was supposed to be bearing fruit for all people and wasn't. So there's the image. It wasn't supposed to be bearing fruit right here. Why did he curse it? How unfair of Jesus. I believe it's emblematic, again, a sign that God's people are, are meant to be bearing fruit at all times in every season. And God sees, witnesses, and Jesus will come to his people expecting fruit at all times, in all seasons, in him. That his life source surpasses the seasons and will bring life even in the, even in the times of famine or barrenness if we abide in him. That's my best guess. You go for it. 
But we do see that the parallels of the fig tree to the temple are quite clear. The current temple in Jesus' day was now King Herod had built this massive temple structure, walls, courts, uh, really a wonder of the world at that time, magnificent, ornate on the backs of slaves. The temple was really man's idea from the beginning. If you remember, the temple was the replacement for the tabernacle instructed to Moses and Israel in their time of journeying and being established as a nation out of Exodus. And it was uh, an artistic, ornate place that God's dwelling came to rest and mediated with his people. So they knew that God was with them. That was a beautiful place, but building a temple seemed to be man's idea. King David in, in 2 Samuel seemed to feel guilty that he was living in a palace and God was remaining in a tent. I will build a house for him, he said, almost like a tribute or a thanks to God for his favor. God received it. He allowed it to take place, but it was certainly something he never needed and perhaps something he never desired. Solomon was the one to ultimately build it, and then it was destroyed, and now King Herod has built it even bigger. No surprise that God is not impressed with these things that are built with our own accord and our own intentions by our own agenda. No matter how, how beautiful something looks on the outside, what matters is the life within. What is it bringing to bless and to give? And so a beautiful tree with, with leaves but no fruit is worthless. So also the temple that may be a massive, beautiful display of, of ingenuity, engineering, and architecture in that day, if not for the presence of God, it's contrary to its nature, its purpose. It is lifeless. It is like a whitewashed tomb. So Jesus comes to the temple and is ultimately cutting off what is already withered. He's cursing with his actions, the overturning of these tables, the driving out of those selling and exchanging funds, the stopping of the, the work of the temple, these, uh, the materials coming in and out. He's cutting that off through his actions, saying, There's, this is already lifeless, and here's the judgment. It is done. Work ends here. No longer will this be a place of God's presence and a place of healing. All of this will be broken down. That was prophetic. It would take years before that temple was ultimately destroyed. But Jesus said that it would be. Every stone will be broken down. Jesus was simply cutting off this place as the source of life for the nations to come to. And he's saying, there's a new source. There's new life in me. And that will be revealed as the story continues. Just as Jesus went to the fruit tree to look and see if it had life and sustenance and goodness, he goes into the temple, verse 11, and looks around to see if there is life, if there is renewal. Are there buds left? Can this be redeemed and restored? And he finds none, and he walks away, thus showing us that Jesus is now the dwelling place of God. Mark doesn't make this temple imagery as explicit as the other gospel writers. So by reading the other gospel writers, you see it very clearly, but it's still there. It's still clearly seen that Jesus is the dwelling place of God. John, the gospel writer John, makes this most clear. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, the logos, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally tented, bringing to mind tabernacle, we could easily say. 
The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is the new presence of God, the Emmanuel, God with us, the divine. And God's presence has left the religious system and structure with its evil oppression and barriers against the nations. He's left that place that he would come to all peoples. Jesus condemns the temple by quoting from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, calling it a den of robbers. Here's Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says Yahweh. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, a place of communion for all peoples, but the chief priests and the religious leaders had, had literally built walls to keep people at a distance from God. Now, we know there were, there were structures in place within the tabernacle that only the priests and then the high priests once a year could enter the most holy place. But man established these barriers that the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews would not be able to draw as near. They had their own place, their own court. They had their own way that they must exchange their currency to have a currency that was acceptable to receive as off offerings. That was the money changers. It's, it's believed that there was often a, a changing exchange rate depending on how, how or who was in place to receive those finances. You have made this a den of robbers in two ways. Not only was there taking advantage of the poor who came from long places to offer worship to Yahweh, needing to exchange their funds or needing to, to buy pigeons or doves, the, the lowest, this is called out by Mark, the lowest sacrifice that could be brought, a bird. But they came from such distances, they didn't have one, they needed to buy it, and oftentimes those prices were more than they could afford. There was an advantage being taken of the poor, of those trying to draw near to God. And maybe that's what is the greatest injustice. They are robbing people the experience to draw near to God, humbly, and to offer their worship and their sacrifices. They're putting barriers in place. And Jesus condemns that and curses that as a den of robbers. You're robbing people from the opportunity to come and worship. This would have incensed Jesus. Not too long ago in the story, the last time we saw him indignant, he's indignant that the disciples are keeping the children from coming to him. Something very similar is happening here. Those last and least ones, the poor in society, are being restricted from coming to God. There's barriers put in place. And the prophetic word, their hands are skilled to do evil. And the powerful dictate what they desire, thus perverting justice, oppressing the poor. Jesus is shutting that down, enacting this curse. This is antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to the kingdom of God and to the justice that he has come to bring and equity for all people. That all who would draw near would find life in him. All could come confidently to him because he is God beckoning, calling, inviting, reconciling the world to him. His kingdom, God's kingdom, is justice. It is equity and it is peace. And he is not seeing that and finding that in the religious system and structure that has been built over the centuries. So when the disciples then saw the withered fig tree, Peter remembers, good memory, Peter, it was a couple hours ago, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. There's probably a lot here. Um, but I, I see a parallel to the question and the encounter with Jesus and the rich man 
and the astonishment of the disciples when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're astonished and say, who can be saved then? (laughs) And Jesus' answer is, with man, with humanity, with human systems, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He will make a way. I see some, this interplay happening again here that Peter may as well have said, okay, I get it, you've, you've, if he got it, but you cut off the temple. If the temple is cut off, if you ended exchange, you ended worship, that where then will people come to worship? Where then will people come to pray? If that's ended, if that's dead, if that's withered, and Jesus saying in response, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I see that same kind of parallel happening here because for Jesus to respond with a teaching on prayer seems strange, doesn't it? Look, the, the, the withered fig tree, you cursed it. Believe in what you pray. Let me teach you about prayer. Is that what he was asking? And we've often taken that, this passage, verse 22 and following, out of context. Believe what you ask for, whatever you ask for in prayer. Believe you've received it. It will be yours. Have more faith. Believe in faith. Simply name it. Claim it. It is yours. Very out of context. In context, Jesus is specifically referring and making the parallel to the temple and to worship and to justice and to equity for all peoples. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. When you stand praying in the same way, in the will and the heart of God for justice, for mercy, for equity, for all people to draw near to God, to know him, when you pray like that, believe it. God will answer that prayer. That is his heart. Let's be very clear. When Jesus says, when you say to this mountain, he is pointing at the temple mount. Jerusalem was up on a mount, and the temple was there. When you say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea, this structure, it will be broken down. Because this, is a religious, this has become a religious institution that is keeping people from experiencing God. And when you join in the heart of God and pray like that, believe it. God will do it. That should give fuel to our prayers when we see injustice in the world. When we see evil and we see pain and we see oppression. When you stand praying against that, that God would cut that off. When you stand praying against the institutions that restrict people from coming to know God in a vibrant way, God will answer that prayer. That is his heart. He may do it in his way and his timing, but know in faith you are praying in accord with his heart. To take this teaching on prayer and apply it to, I just need a better job. I need my car to be fixed. I need my kid to get into that college. I need that. This is totally out of context. Now, the heart of God may very well be to give you the desire, the personal desires of of your heart. He, He loves to bless. He loves to give good things to his children. But let's not pull out our own application out of context. Let's put it back into the right context of what Jesus was teaching and revealing here. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Because if Peter's question is, if, if, the, if the temple is cut off, if people can't come here to gather any longer, then, then what? Where, where will we go? Where will they go? Where will they pray? What are you doing, Jesus? 
Remember what he said to the woman at the well, John 4, 21. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She was a Samaritan. They had their own place that they were worshiping. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is in the midst of revealing himself as the temple, the place that all could draw near and worship and find communion with God. He was bringing that to the world. The temple, the tabernacle, was merely a placeholder for a time. Jesus is fulfilling God's promise to dwell with his people. John chapter 2, verse 18 Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign will you show us to prove your authority to do these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus made very clear that he was the temple of God. Many missed it, even in this immediate context of John 2. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it in three days? John gives us the answer. But the temple he's spoken of was his own body. He becomes the dwelling. The dwelling place of God is released into the world. So that now, where is the dwelling place of God? Jesus has ascended to heaven. Who did he send in his place? Holy Spirit is with us. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme very clearly. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves, you all, speaking to the church in Corinth... We say to all them, the church that would gather, God's people, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives and dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do you see that parallel language of destroying, of breaking, but God's life coming to fill and to dwell? Therefore, wherever God's people gather and assemble and are together in his name, in his will, Praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in this place, at this time, amongst these peoples, in this community, in this neighborhood, in this city. When we do that, the spirit of God inhabits us. We are his temple. We become sacred. He sees us that way because of what Christ has done. Maybe one of the most vital realities revealed in scripture, the way that God has in his majesty and often mystery restored all that is broken and lost to return to dwell with his people as it was at his creation when he had perfect intimacy and communion with his people and that is broken and the ways that God has over the centuries, the millennia, worked to establish his place again with his people to come to his people, not to sit upon a mountain calling his people to find their way back to him but to come to them relentlessly again and again and again and above all, in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who has come to dwell, to be, to be the divine presence amongst his people, starting with a small group, extending and multiplying to all peoples, and now in the power of his spirit to dwell wherever the church gathers, whether two or three or 50 or 500 or 1,000 or more, when the church gathers in his name to give witness 
to give testimony to who he is, what he's done, his promises of what he will always do and what he will fulfill. The Spirit of God dwells with us. This is the story of Scripture. This is the gospel. This is the message reinforced and revealed again and again. God will do whatever it takes to break down walls, to break down barriers that we could have access to him and communion with him. With man, this is impossible. We cannot make it. We cannot build the structures or the systems or follow the religion enough to establish it. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So believe, don't doubt When you pray like this, that God's presence would multiply, would be known, would be experienced, would fill, would come to all peoples, God answers this prayer. It is his will. So we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one of the right responses, a response of worship, of hope, and of longing. As we sing today, may that be a response Personally, believe. Walk in faith, believe. Pray with the the Father, the desperate Father in Mark 9. I believe, God. Help me with my unbelief. Seeing honestly where we struggle. When we look into the world and say, how are you not present here? How are you not acting? How are you seemingly remaining silent? Whether that's the injustice happening in our own neighborhood or across the street or amongst our family or across the world. When we long and we say, I believe, God, I believe. We need you, Lord. Help our unbelief. We're struggling here. Believe God's love and pursuit of you today because he's shown it throughout history that he is faithful and he is not done. Believe that because of Jesus, you can draw near to him today. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of Jesus and what he's done, we can all draw near to him. We can step toward him today. We do that through heart response We may do that through actual confession of our own sin, our own doubt, our own uncertainties that are leading us away from Christ, one to another or to him. We do so in taking communion and responding and being reminded of his broken body and life given for us. When you pray like this, pray that you're able to forgive those who have hurt you, who have sinned against you, that your father would forgive you. Pray that you would know that grace again. Pray that whatever you're holding against someone today, and it may be very, very legitimate and real, that somehow by the grace of God, you'd be able to release that into his hands more today. Maybe fully, but more today. That you would know his grace more and be able to extend it more. That that becomes the pattern of our life walking in faith. And as you receive communion, his life given for you, God, teach me to love like that. So far from that. Help me, Lord. May this be one of our responses. The Apostle Paul, I want to read this extended passage because these themes just come together in Paul's theology of what Christ has done to break down barriers, to establish peace, to call people to himself. Believe that you can draw near to God. Believe that he has done it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, in this extended passage, a beautiful passage and a reminder and call for us to respond. Remember, he calls the church, remember you saints, remember that you were at one time without Christ. You were aliens. You, you, were, you were not a part of Israel. That speaks to most of us in this room, the non-Jewish heritage. That's who he's speaking to, the, these Greeks in, in, the, in the Ephesian church, the Ephesus area. You were strangers to the covenants of the promise. 
You didn't even know the promises of God. You were outside of the family. You were disconnected. You were separated. And therefore, you have no hope. And you were without God in this world. But, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, our peace, our shalom. In his flesh, he has made both groups, Israel and not Israel, all nations. He has made both groups one. He's broken down the dividing walls. He's broken the hostility that exists between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments, its ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death hostility. So he came and he proclaimed peace, shalom, to you who are far off, and peace, shalom, to those who are near. For through him, both of us now have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and members of the house of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He's the new temple. Everything is built upon him. In him, the whole structure, the household is joined together and grows up into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place of God. Powerful words. God's kingdom is unity, it's equity, it's justice, and therefore it is peace. It is shalom. Justice and peace are inseparable. Where there is true justice, there will be true peace. Where there is true peace, there is true justice. Anything less than is false. Tragically, the men in power in this story, just like in our world today, prefer their own structures, their own systems, their own authority, and reject the presence of God amongst them. They choose to hold on and fight. It says right here in the text, having heard this, having seen what Jesus was saying, was doing, They looked for a way to kill him rather than to yield to his kingdom and receive the life that he wanted to bring. And not much has changed in our world. Ironically, in killing him, they killed the temple and they brought his kingdom into greater fullness of reality. Mark says in Mark 15, 37, at the moment of Jesus' death, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And at that moment, the curtain in the temple is torn from into from top to bottom. It is done. You can look at this two ways. There is now no restriction. All can come to God, but I like to see it as it is done. God's presence has left. It is out in the world now. The Spirit has come. On Pentecost, the Spirit has come to fill his church. And we can have a Pentecost moment every time we as a church yield to him, welcome him, humble ourselves, walk justly, love, mercy, and invite him to be present with us. God, make us more aware of your presence. We need to see you and know you. 
Believe that God's love and pursuit is for you. Believe that you, we, together can draw near to him because of what Christ has done. It is finished. And from this humble posture, we pray, God, show us injustice. Show us inequity. Show us where the oppression exists. We see it in our world, and it's often easy to see over there, in them, in those people. God, show it within our own heart. Give us eyes to see where we've joined in to even work or systems that oppress, deny, separate people from God. People from their identity and who God has created them to be. Show us, God, across social, class, racial, and gender lines. Have we restricted access unknowingly, perhaps willingly, from people who would want to draw near to God, who are coming to him, the marginalized poor and outcast. We come out of Black History Month or in Women's History or Women's Equality Month. I believe as a church we've taken many strides in the, in the years behind us, and I pray we take many more. There's much work to yet to be done. Pray for justice. Pray for his kingdom. Pray for unity. Pray for equity. Not just over there, but right here. Right here in us. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For you are all one now in Christ Jesus. Live like it. Be the church. May we be one in him as we respond. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we need your life in us. Help us abide in you. Jesus, you prayed for that, that we would abide in you, that we would be one as you and the Father are one. May we never be cut off. May we be only pruned, and we need pruning. We want to thrive. We want to be fruitful in every season, at all times. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we stand for if necessary, fight for, to defend justice, equity, unity, shalom. We yield to your majesty and to your mystery. We continue to pray, God, don't be silent. Wait no longer. And may it begin right here in our midst today. Holy Spirit, come. Reveal, heal, inspire us to your work this day and in the week ahead for your glory alone and for our joy. Amen.